0: Greetings, little one.
1: Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Bad witch. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife.
0: What makes you think she is a witch?
1: Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Not better. Dost thou comprehend?
0: Welcome to real magic a podcast at the crossroads of real witchcraft and Hollywood magic, where paganism and the supernatural meet their reflections in movies and television, and where we talk about what real magical or life lessons we can learn from fictional witches from 100 years of moving pictures. I'll
1: let you my mine, pretty, and your little dog, too.
0: Hi there, witches and weirdos. It's Jessica again with another episode of The Real Magic Podcast. Uh, Jessica Mason, that is in case for some reason you didn't know my name and you wanted to listen to this podcast. Anyway, so today we have a kind of special episode. Usually our episodes focus on a single show or movie, but today I brought back one of my favorite guests that I've had on, Morgan Daimler, who is an expert in all things fairy. So I talked with them about fairies, about how the idea of fairies, especially the pixie Tinkerbell type of fairies, have evolved in movies and television. And it says a lot about our society and what we think is appropriate for children and what we think is appropriate to have in media at all and the way that we portray fairies. And Sometimes it's respectful of the good folk, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's accurate, and sometimes it's not. So it was a really fun conversation. We went in all sorts of fun uh, ways. And so I hope you enjoy this discussion of fairies with Morgan Daimler. And just a little note, I'm going to play a clip here like I usually do, and this is from Peter Pan, but it's from the live-action one that came out in the early 2000s, starring hot Captain Hook, Jason Isaacs. Um, We don't specifically talk about this movie, but I just want to shout it out because it's a wonderful version of Peter Pan, and this scene that I'm going to play a clip from is maybe my favorite scene in the movie, and the clip doesn't do it justice, but it makes me cry every time, so just know that as I'm editing and recording this, I am crying just a little bit. Enjoy.
1: I do believe in fairies. I do. I do. I do
0: believe. Do I do?
1: I do believe in fairies. You what? I do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies. I do. I do. I do believe in fairies. Do I, believe in fairies. Do in right do. I do believe in fairies. <laughs> I, do, do, in fairies? I, I do. do. I do. I, I do, do believe in fairies. I do. I do. I do believe in fairies. believe in fairies. I don't believe fairies. I don't. I
0: don't. Well, welcome back to the Real Magic Podcast, Morgan Daimler. I'm so excited to have you back to talk about our favorite topic, which is fairies.
1: I'm so excited to be here. It's always super fun to talk to you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, usually I'll ask people about like childhood
0: movie memories, but since you've already been on before, I was going to start with one of mine that I was mentioning before we start recording. One of my favorite movies of all time as a kid, even though like now looking back in retrospect I'm like, oh, there's hella racist parts, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> Peter Pan, like, especially like if you edit out all the Native American stuff. <laughs> but I think Peter Pan is one of those movies that has, you know, is incredibly influential in the way we perceive fairies in our oh. culture. So that's, I think, a good starting point.
1: Oh, 100% agree with you. So yeah, 100 percent only
0: one real fairy in the Disney Peter Pan. I mean, there's other fairies around, but Tinkerbell is sort of the quintessential what people think of when they think about fairy. And so where did Tinkerbell come from, do you think?
1: Um, oh, I love that. That's such a complicated question to dive right into at the start here. Um, Tinkerbell is kind of this really interesting sort of distillation of what we were seeing in particularly the victorian era and um a combination of kind of the art and the the fiction of the time which of course the original peter pan the book was written kind of at the end yeah of that time period and you know this idea that she was tiny that um she had wings that you know she had her abilities and powers but was it was fairly limited Mm-hmm. um and also that she's very much infantilized in a lot of ways she's very childlike um and you know yeah, but not, i mean the disney
0: Tinkerbell is pretty sexy though
1: she is the yeah. way they They've portray
0: entered. her
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes that is that is accurate and true um but her actual her attitude and her behavior yeah. is very um childlike very instant gratification and um, sort of what you'd expect in a, you know, maybe like a younger elementary school child, which fits with Peter Pan and yeah. the Lost Boys. And, you know, she's she's kind of right in that peer group.
0: All about um, immaturity and growing up. And so she's sort of, you know, Peter Pan represents, you know, the desire to be always young. And Tinkerbell is kind of like the darker impulsive, even darker impulsive side of not growing up and being selfish with people's affection and you know, what's a little yep. murder if you just want to keep a friend around?
1: <laughs> yeah, shoot down the Wendy Bird. It's it's fine. Yeah. It's good. I mean, when you
0: think about it, like in terms of, you know, the the very good advice of don't piss off fairies, Tinkerbell's yep. a really good example of like, she's not a su- specifically nice fairy to people who aren't in her inner circle.
1: No, and that's, that's really what makes her such an interesting thing to look at at the very beginning here, because it really was this time period through the Victorian era where a lot of this traditional folklore was being taken, which did depict fairies as very dangerous and mercurial and powerful. You you really didn't want to make them angry because, you know, lots of terrible things can happen. Um, usually they weren't perceived as small and winged. That was something that kind of occurred over the span of, of this time period. But we start to see this sort of shift where Um, fairies go from being sort of something that was used as a cautionary thing. Um, You know, if you take the more sociological anthropological view that they don't exist in reality, they were just a construct. They were something that was used to keep children away from dangerous areas, to keep children from going out at night to kind of ensure a certain type of behavior. I will say, as I'm saying this, I do believe they actually exist. Like I I am Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and I would get along really good. (laughs) Yeah, Um, We'll (laughs) (laughs) we'll get there. Um, But, you know, taking it from that outside perspective, sort of the purpose they seem to serve sociologically was to to sort of maintain a certain behavior with children. And what we see during this time period is a huge change with that into them becoming sort of the dominion and the domain of children. And now they're, they're children's friends, and you know, they're something that children would want to connect with and associate with, which is a huge change from what they had been. And yet, like you had pointed out with Tinkerbell, we still see this sort of dangerous um, mercurial sort of potential for harm going on. Although I'll point out in Peter Pan, Tinkerbell couldn't actually hurt Wendy herself. Uh, she had to influence others to do it. Yes. Yes. She had to get the Lost Boys to do it for her, try to do it for her. Anyway, because as we all know, spoiler alert, yeah. she did she did not succeed. You know, there is no murder in Disney Peter Peter
0: Pan. For Tinkerbell, like, you know, Peter Pan started as a play by Jane Barry. And, you know, as problematic as Johnny Depp is now, I Finding Neverland, the, the movie about the creation of that play, is just a wonderful movie. I bawl my eyes out in that movie. But when you think about like Victorian stagecraft, like she is a factor of that because they couldn't put a fairy on stage. They had a bell. They literally had a bell
1: yeah, and like sometimes like a light bell. on the stick. Yeah. Um, actually, the light effect that they used to portray Tinkerbell on the stage at the time was super cutting edge. Oh, yeah. That was like. You know, and that was part of the thrill for the audience of like, you know, how are they doing this? It was very magical, this effect, but it it moved the concept of Tinkerbell even further away from the sort of anthropomorphized fairies. It, I'll use the term loosely. I actually have major issues with anthropomorphizing fairies, but in appearance anyway. Um, that we find in the older material, and, and further into this sort of disembodied, non-corporeal, you know, like you said, she literally is just a little bit of light. Yeah. Reflection off a mirror.
0: Yeah, and that was, immediate, but it was still so, you know, it's, that's the magic of theater right there. It is. <laughs> so you, you have is. a fusion of fairies and the magic of theater, but like, you know, Peter Pan, the movie from late, early 50s, mm-hmm. um, I think it was in 52, because it was, pre-Disneyland, because Peter Pan's flight, the best ride in Disneyland was one of the opening day rides in Disneyland. So obviously it existed before 1955 when Disneyland opened. That's my Disney nerd coming out.
1: Um but it That's was a like, useful thing to know. You have this whole timeline. It's good. Exactly.
0: Um like and Sleep this is a tangent. We talked about Sleeping Beauty last time, but Sleeping Beauty, the movie, was not actually out when Disneyland opened, even though they had Sleeping Beauty Castle as part of it. Like that castle was almost like a giant advertisement for this movie that was not
1: out yet. Soon to
0: be out. In You're the, like, in the okay, works, well. in the plans. Um but you know, Disney itself was built on a lot of nostalgia. So is Disneyland. And so it was very 50s but it was also drawing on like the sort of Victorian nostalgia and so like if we go back to Peter Pan and Tinkerbell like the what was the idea of fairies for J.M. Barrie because you mentioned Arthur Conan Doyle and you mentioned the illustrations that were being coming very popular of fairies and I'm thinking of like Arthur Rackham is my favorite Mm -hmm. fairy. Oh Rackham's artwork is gorgeous I have a illustrated Wagner's ring cycle by him I have illustrated. I have a Midsummer Night's Dream illustrated by Rackham and then but there was also like the flower fairies were also kind of like the same uh Cicely Mary Barker yep yeah I have those Um, books too and there's like I don't I don't think we take into account how influential those books and those illustrations were on like how we mm -hmm. think of fairies because they were sort of the first mass market fairy illustrations, right?
1: Yeah, and they were very popular, um, and they continue to be popular. But they're beautiful, uh,
0: beautiful, beautiful art.
1: They are, and they're used for a lot of things. Um, like, you can find them in all sorts of places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yay for public domain! <laughs> yeah, um, and you can still get the books and, and all of that, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, talking about Rackham, when you look at his work, because he illustrated a, a huge amount of fairy tales, and He has all sorts of fairy material out there. And his work for the time was very diverse. He has human-sized fairies. He has tiny fairies. He has uh, beautiful fairies. He has sort of the the hideous goblin type of fairy. So he has this huge range with wings, without wings. Rackham did it all, Um, which is just great. I I encourage everyone listening to this, go just search him on the internet and you will find him, him. million examples
0: beautiful you know you, you've like even if you don't know the name Arthur Rackham you've seen his art oh yeah yeah it's, like he's it's one of those people like oh that's it's all about the same guy he's sort of I mean he was sort of in the same bubble sort of as the pre-Raphaelites So my other favorite artist yeah. is John Waterhouse who's another artist
1: I, I was just going to compare Waterhouse and the like you might not recognize the name Waterhouse but I guarantee you would yeah. recognize some of Waterhouse's work because you've definitely seen it
0: Yeah, and the thing I love about Waterhouse's work, and you can kind of see this in Rackham's work too, is like it's very obviously Waterhouse had like one or two models. So if you look at his whole his whole body of work, it's like three different women and all these different. It's like, oh, the mermaid is also Miranda, who is also Lady
1: Charlotte, and one of them was his wife. Shh, that's a secret. You're not supposed to tell people. Preserve the mystery. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, they all those ladies all look kind of a little like. Yeah, if if you look at most artists that are fairly prolific in their work, um, like even Brian Froud, who is oh, a yeah. well, modern fairy artist, but I adore his work, but you you will start to get familiar with like, huh, a lot of these elves look the same mm-hmm. and not in a, you know, he's not a good artist who just makes stuff that looks the same way, but in a he's clearly pulling from the same
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of material, the same model. So. I think, and I think you can definitely see a
0: through line from Arthur Rackham to Brian Froud. Like their fairies look very similar, um, especially if you look at like Brian Froud stuff from like the '70s and '80s.
1: Yeah. Um, but maybe you know, maybe they had the same fairies working with them. Who knows? Maybe same source of inspiration. Yeah. In that, but so, like sounds... you know, going back
0: to sort of like the Victorian, late Victorian, kind of early Edwardian era,
1: mm-hmm. when
0: we were sort of going into like these idea of these pretty fairies that live in gardens and how does Arthur Conan Doyle come into this story because it's a pretty fun mixing of fantasy and reality there
1: yeah and it's good timing too I think it's actually the 100th anniversary of the subject we're about to talk about which would be the the Cottingley fairy hoax um very infamous Cottingley fairy hoax um so Arthur Conan Doyle was actually a pretty avid believer in fairies um it's a very spiritual person, very interested in a lot of things, sort of in this uh Melu. And um I believe it was 100 years ago. It might have been a little earlier, because uh, now, of course, I'm spacing on the exact date having said that. But I know it's a significant anniversary this year, because it's been all over all the fairy groups everywhere. Uh, There were two girls in England, and they produced these pictures photographs and keeping in mind that photography was a very new technology at the time yeah um, it, it had been around for a little while but it was still um, reasonably new yeah like you
0: you wouldn't have your own camera most people didn't you yeah. would go to a photographer to sit for a portrait it was a yeah. big deal yeah at the time and I, but like at home cameras were like things. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yes. And I think this was right as we were shifting into where you didn't have to sit for half an hour to get Mm -hmm. your photo taken. Yeah. Um, Like, let's all just appreciate that when you see the really old, like, 19th century photographs, those are people who literally sat there for, like, 20, 30 minutes, because that was how long it took.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, props to them. I I don't know if I could do that. These
0: girls in England. Oh.
1: Yep, yep. Yeah. We got all sidetracked on on photographic oh, technology. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um they produced this picture which was allegedly of one of the girls and these fairies and it sparked this enormous controversy. Um you know, there were people who very immediately believed, there were people who didn't. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle was one of the people who very much believed and he was a very um Significant advocate for these girls. Um, They ended up uh, being given a new camera, um, and part of that was they were trying to prove that it wasn't fake by proving that they weren't tampering with the camera or the photographic plates that were used. So everything was supplied to them, and sort of like go children into the woods and (laughs) get more fairy pictures.
0: No way they could be holding up paper cut out of a fairy.
1: Right. Who would have thought of such a thing? Um, This is like way before Photoshop, but... Right? (laughs) Way, way before Photoshop. Um, But of course, you know, the skeptics were trying to argue that it wasn't possible, and they were pointing to details within the photographs that they felt were questionable. And this was actually enormously controversial for decades. Decades. And finally... um, The girls, of course, had grown up and as adults. um, One of them, as she was sort of nearing the end of her life, came forward and said that, no, they had faked the pictures. um, That they had, as you mentioned, made little um, paper cutouts of these fairies and and propped them up. Um, Part of the reason this worked, for everyone now who's listening to this, being like, how could anyone, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, fall for this? is you have to keep in mind what we said at the beginning that tech, pho- photography was a very new technology. Everything was black and white or sort of sepia-toned. Um, you did not have the sharp detail. Like, this this is not 21st century photography. Nope. <laughs> no. Century, you know, Early 20th, yeah. late 19th century yeah. photography.
0: and Also, like, the context of these photographs and, like, Conan Doyle's interest in this also comes out of the spiritualist movement. Yes. Which was... I mean, there's so much on that to be just, there's all whole, whole movies on spiritualism and that, um, but photography was it. And the idea of spiritualism was like, we had the technology now and the idea we could contact the other world, we could contact the dead. And it kind of extended in this way. Oh, we can now we can photograph fairies. Cause there's a lot in spiritualism about spirit photography. And there were so many people who had, you know, these spirit photograph, um, you know, salons where people would come and get a photograph and something, like, oh yes, we'll photograph the ghost that's following you around. And it was just a double exposure, but no one yep. knew what a double exposure was.
1: Yeah. A Really famous example of that is, um, uh, President Lincoln's wife. Yep. Uh, who was also very interested in spiritualism um, due to the multiple tragedies that she went through in her life, you know, in, in fairness, is kind of where her interest in, in spirit photography and, um, that aspect of things came from not criticizing spiritualism because spiritualism is really cool, but, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln in particular, her interest in it came with wanting to connect to, um, her husband. And I believe it was a son who had passed.
0: Yeah. yeah. So much of the spiritualist movement came after the civil war in America when everyone had dead relatives that they would like to talk to. But Victor Hugo was a huge into spiritualism as well. I mean, like lots of, it was huge. And so, The fairy photographs kind of came as an extension of that and they popular, they they even more popularize this idea of like fairies are tiny women with wings who live in your garden, which, you know, valid.
1: I'm sure it it turns out that the pictures that the girl used um, I shouldn't say it turns out there's basically 90% certain at this point that the pictures the girls used were copied from a very popular. um, What we call basically like a coloring book that was going around at the time that had these outlines of these fairies and that they had, you know, sort of painstakingly reproduced them and then cut them out and then propped them up and, you know, it was it was all very elaborate, but it has been pointed out that the images that they used were, were something that people would probably have recognized. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But that yeah. actually it added to why people believed it and the realism, because that was what people thought this is what
0: fairies look like. Exactly. And they didn't and no one had like mass media back then. No one's gonna have a tweet going viral, like saying, Hey, look, I have the same book. Like, you know, the information right. moved so slowly. But and, you know, so fairies kind of became like you said, like they became children's, you know, fairy tales were children's fantasy stories and the fairies became tinkerbell
1: yep yep they they definitely went from being you know don't wander out in the woods in the dark because the fairies might steal you away and you'll never be seen again to um these sort of delightful tiny little garden sprites who if you were really lucky you would see them you know, dancing in your garden and tending your flowers. And it's just such a huge contrast. Um, So it's, it's fascinating to see. It's very Victorian. The Victorians did that to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They they were really fond of taking stuff and being like, hmm, let's make this better. By which I mean,
0: kind of scary, kind (laughs) of sexy, kind of mysterious thing, just like very small and infantilized or just, yeah, let's just put it in a little box, which is what I yeah. mean. And that's sort of like that Victorian attitudes is like, let's just have a very narrow, you know, and for literally Victorians, very Anglo centric English culture centric version of things. And we translate that to Walt Disney in the fifties and the fifties were very much the same sort of thing where yeah. it was a very American centric, very forward looking, not introspective never wanting to talk about the dark sides of life especially in movies because when you had like the things like the production code in movies you were literally getting this very sanitized version of reality in the men the yep. media the way that the victorian manners kind of created a sanitized version of reality in you know mass market fairy books
1: yep yep it's actually really interesting to look at what started with the Victorian era, and then what we see in in Peter Pan with Tinkerbell, um, you would think as we moved forward into like the 80s and 90s, and the 21st century, that that would either reverse itself, or, you know, there would be some significant maybe shift in a different direction, just because of what the culture was doing at the time. And what we actually see is the opposite. We see it becoming even more kind of dialed in. So like the Tinkerbell that my kids have grown up with um has been even further sanitized.
0: Yeah, Tinkerbell is like nice now and all like her Tinkerbell movies. Like yes. she's not an asshole. She's actually got like a character <laughs> voice. And like they took like the whole they took the in so those of you who are not like deep into Disney Plus with your young ones like we, there's like a the whole disney series of movies about tinkerbell and like she's literally a tinkerer she likes to like build things so it's like let's get girls into stem by making yep. tinkerbell be an inventor which i think is a really honestly great like, yes i kind of like where they've taken tinkerbell to like not want to murder people instead just like want to make adventures
1: yeah um i i am at, in fact totally in favor of her being less homicidal yeah um for you know a children's character that that definitely is the quality that i appreciate i will point out though they have not made her less sexy no she's still kind of kind of
0: got the same look
1: yeah and all of her she has a whole bunch of friends now for again everyone that does have small children and is missing the context of this part of the conversation she's a whole bunch of friends now and they are also very similarly attired in these like little mini dresses kind yeah. of very easily um,
0: merchandisable like you know they're like barbie shaped fairies and you know and it's it's and you know they're collectible because there's a flower fairy and yeah. there's an animal fairy and there's like a water fairy and a winter fairy
1: who's also like Tinkerbell's secret sister or something i yeah <laughs> <got into> that <laughs> that's before. that's a whole movie yeah yeah
0: and then there's one who like goes off to be a pirate with like tom
1: hiddleston <laughs> I mean, can that you blame her though? I, as as would we all,
0: yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, if you want, <laughs> if you, if anyone enjoyed hearing Tom Hiddleston sing on Loki? Like he sings like a whole song in the Pirate Fairy. Spoiler alert: He's kind of Captain Hook, but he's like young, hot Captain Hook.
1: How <laughs> oh, how high we will, we will be?
0: Cause the blue fairy dust surely packs a mighty wallop. Sure Soon it will set us free. We'll be from the chains of gravity and we'll hoist up the sail and we'll set course for the sun because when you've got wings no wicked deed cannot be done and we owe it all to our great and glorious captain not really hot but he's like much better looking in this movie than... yeah but he sings which yeah, is he the sings, important he part a whole song it's great yeah. it's you know we've i've seen this movie like 80 times
1: <laughs> One of the many... you have small children yeah,
0: yeah, you have like the one you've seen, the pirate fairy, because it was on Netflix, also on Disney Plus, so it's like everywhere. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. just, so,
1: it's fairy. it's interesting to look at the way that they, they've they made the fairies nicer and friendlier, and they've also really leaned into the idea, which again came out of the Victorian era, that fairies are connected to nature, that are they're basically nature spirits, and that they each have these sort of jobs, these mm-hmm. assignments to keep the natural world you know, Ronnie, like you sure. mentioned, Tinkerbell has this sister who's a snow fairy, winter fairy.
0: Yeah, it's very much kind of like almost like Sailor Moon. Like there's like a collectible group of, you know, this whole team with different colors yep. and you can get all the colors together. And it's very much like there's that comes out of like the 80s so much. It's like, oh, you have a whole group of people and they're all yeah, having a different it... color. And then there's a special princess one who's like a rainbow. So, yep. it, yeah, everyone has really their rainbow bright
1: everyone has their their color coordinated outfit based on what they do and everyone has a different thing that they do mm-hmm. like you don't have like a fairy who can you know help the animals and care for animals but who also can like color the flower petals or you know help the seasons transition like they're very very job specific yeah
0: and you kind of see, like, we have, you know, you sort of see that in, like, Fantasia, if you want to, like, bring in another Disney influence, though. yeah, Fantasia was not actually a very popular movie. Like, it was sort of, it was very ambitious and it kind of became popular years later, but when it, like, came out, it was like, what the heck is this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, once again, with a slight caveat for the the horrible racism that you can find in yeah. the Fantasia also movie, this I actually really loved the Fantasia movie, minus the horribly yeah. inappropriate parts
0: um,
1: yeah uh, uh my uh,
0: you know my favorite part as a you know as a tiny goth baby you know my favorite part was always night in bald mountain <laughs> yep yep, um, same hard same like i love <laughs> there's really like a lot of satan in early Disney. <laughs> like you have and again going back to like disneyland like there's like mr toe's wild ride you end going to to hell. I'm <laughs> uh, out of the ride. Like, oh, I was just in hell.
1: <laughs> it's fine. You got out of it. You're okay. It's fine.
0: It's all good. It's good. Yeah. But it's, yeah. It's like Sernabog, I'm I always pronounce that name wrong in that and mountain It's terrifying. And like, you know, they made that. They're like, that's like, okay, we have to throw in a really hastily animated version of Ave Maria <laughs> <they get. laughs> We don't terrify everyone. Yeah. But also, you know, talking about like the flower fairies, what do you think, how influential, what influential do you think was Shakespeare here? Because we do have like up until then, I think like the, you know, the biggest pop culture fairies was fairies from Midsummer Night's Dream yep. and to a lesser extent, The Tempest because Ariel's
1: kind of a fairy. Ariel's- and Romeo and Juliet. The, the first appearance of fairies in Shakespeare is Romeo oh, and exactly. Juliet. Yeah, where Mercutio has his whole like rant about Queen map and the dream she brings and
0: it's very uh, descriptive of like a very tiny person riding in like an acorn
1: shell and it's it's, and she has a job she of course she does um yeah there's a whole thing when you sort of trace back fairy beliefs and these different strands of fairy belief um in English folklore in particular and, and not so much among like the, the everyday people, if you will, but more along among like the um, the elite, yeah. the nobility, the people who had a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. <laughs> trying to think of the nicest way to say this. Um, there was a lot of interest fairly early on in scientific methods and science, uh, rudimentary from our perspective, obviously, because we're talking like the 17th, 18th century, Um, 16th century uh, really would be the earliest that's when Romeo and Juliet was late 16th century and when we start to get into these concepts and the way science plays into this is because of this idea of things being miniaturized and tiny and these early sort of ideas that um, things could exist that the human eye couldn't perceive Um, you know Things that uh, were sort of building blocks for larger objects, larger reality, and so we see this sort of idea, this strand in English folklore of um, miniaturized, well, everything, quite frankly, but particularly fairies. And it was very unique to that that particular folklore. You you don't see this everywhere else. Like, if you talk to your average working person. In England mm-hmm. <laughs> who did not have a lot of time on their hands and ask them you know what is a fairy to you they would be telling you stories like you know for Midsummer Night's Dream with Puck uh, Robin Goodfellow this idea of this um, spirit that looks fairly human and you know could be helpful maybe if he felt like it in uh, doing chores around the barn but could also be very mischievous and cause a lot of problems and you know we see this idea of most fairies that people would talk about were beings that were either you know say four to five to six feet tall or sometimes more like three feet tall yeah on the smaller end
0: like a lot of the fairies across you know or what we would call like fae, you know (laughs) otherworldly folk across europe are always are are very often described as like the small people the little people like the other ones and they're not like tinkerbell size they're just small (laughs)
1: yeah um, Yeah usually and across folklore what you'll find when when you're talking about dim- what we would call diminutive fairies small fairies, it's like 18 inches to three feet yeah. is normally they if they're it. if yeah um, if they're given a, a physical you know height specifically to them this idea of them being really small comes from that one strand of English mm-hmm. folk belief. Shakespeare of course is the the prime example that we have in writing I think, if I remember correctly, he's the earliest example that we definitively have in writing. There's a slightly earlier one, but it's translated from Latin, and it's a little questionable with the translation if there was a mistake, um, because it describes fairies that were like half an inch tall but doing things like carrying frogs around in their strong, pocket. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well, in their in their pocket though, so it's most likely a a mistranslation from um, I think it's a foot tall Mm -hmm. was if I'm remembering this correctly Um, and I'm totally digressing so I apologize but my point is Shakespeare is kind of the first one we see uh, with Romeo and Juliet with this idea of Queen Mab who he describes as basically the size of the stone in a ring an alderman's ring specifically if that matters to anyone (laughs) but you know I I, I don't I don't think they have a specific stone size that is different for everyone else but you know this this idea of her being like basically the size of you know what you could fit in a ring yeah because that's how she gets in your literal ear and
0: like makes you dream mm-hmm. about things how else would she fit in there she wasn't yeah, there? well clearly it's just like a horrifying oh. when you think that like <laughs> practically it's like oh god I'm terrified
1: of like spiders crawling in my ear when I'm <laughs> And he has some very evocative descriptions of the spokes on the, the wheels of the carriage she rides in are made of spider's legs and, yeah. you know, but it's all these very tiny little um, little things, you know. And it's Shakespeare uh, going on this great, like, riff. He's just following this train of thought, like, what,
0: it, how does she get in your brain? How does she get um, so tiny? Like, how, how, how can we talk about this? And he's, he's Shakespeare being... Shakespeare fair, like, yeah. fairies are are I'd, I mean we don't really have any descriptors in a Midsummer Night's Dream of like what the size of these fairies are in relation to the humans that they are they are tormenting and having fun with.
1: I mean it it seems to be implied at least Oberon and Titania are human sized yeah, because oh, yeah, the whole like, the, yeah the, the whole thing, the thing with Nick Bottom would not yeah. make a lot of sense yeah if Titania so, was was very tiny.
0: And but Titania's attendants are also very like botanical.
1: Yes. Like, moth
0: and mustard seed and
1: peas blossom, peas, cobweb.
0: And, yeah. And so they're very like those are great names. And I just love them at Summer Dream*. It's my one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. I played Titania yes. once and um it's just great. And it's just such a like mini thing. It's like they're just a complete mishmash of different mythologies. And it's because like, okay, they're in Athens but but it's also like English sure. people like, why not Nicopolita and Theseus and all these like <laughs> Greek people but there's a bunch of English fairies and there's a bunch of English people um, and there's some English play.
1: actors wandering around yeah trying it's to do like play.
0: it's literally like Shakespeare and the Renaissance because there's all this like high-minded classical stuff and then there's yeah. just like they regular folk and they're all coming together in this Woods in Midsummer, and it's
1: it's great, and it's, it's such a fun play. And I I was also in a Midsummer Night's Dream. I was Peas Blossom, so I have a a soft spot <laughs> for the play. Um, but, you know, but also his his language in Midsummer is so
0: evocative of you know, like it's very botanical, and but it also talks about like Oberon and Titania
1: are very much kind of
0: they're very much deities, almost in disguise, because they're like we're fighting with each other, and the world is angry.
1: Yeah, and the world is messed up. Yeah, because and, and of it. Then
0: there's also like some Orientalism in there because like she stole a child from India. Yep. So it's just- Te- a- well,
1: Technically, technically she stole a handmaiden from India. Oh yeah, and then- And then the handmaiden died having the child and that's how she got the child.
0: Yeah, and they're fighting over like this- Little boy. boy. Yep. Yeah, It's that's,
1: there's so much in that. <laughs> there's a lot going on. So much. Um, and, and it, it, it really, it's such an interesting contrast to me with what we see in Romeo and Juliet, where, as we've established, there's this little tiny fairy um, who brings dreams. That's really her ability. She also um, causes mats in the, the hair of lazy women. <laughs> so gotta love that. That's but, why my hair is so tingly. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's, there's a whole lot of cultural references in Shakespeare that kind of slide by i think a lot of modern audiences but
0: well to go on like another shakespeare tangent like in the scottish play which is another one of his very supernatural plays all the thing most of the things the witches are putting in their brew are folk names for herbs yep plants. yep um toe of frog is buttercups Yep.
1: batswing is holly leaves yeah Yeah. i've
0: is like mustard seeds who is you know again a character in (laughs) In summer and so like I did a whole write-up once on like all the different stuff so, like some of them are like just weird things he came up with because they rhymed but yeah. but most of them were like you know you can just imagine him going around like to an apothecary like what's that one called oh yes write that one. <laughs> excellent
1: excellent like,
0: that sounds gross yes wool of
1: bat. oh
0: that's way better than just saying moss
1: <laughs> yeah um it's it's fascinating and I think that you know the original audience hearing it at that time probably a lot of them would have gotten those references Mm -hmm. um in the same way like uh Mab Queen Mab uh Mab was actually a word in that time period in English for a woman who is lazy and slovenly would be the the fancy way to say it yes um and so it's Shakespeare being typical Shakespeare that he names her that and then one of the things that she does is she causes elf locks which are mats in the hair of lazy women which you know it's it's just such a Shakespearean like play on her name and then what she does and you know it all kind of connects back together I'm sure somewhere in there there's a dick joke because
0: that's just what Shakespeare. (laughs)
1: I have no doubt. Oh, yeah, uh, he was very I good w- at
0: that. I want to figure, your brain to get really nerdy here because, like you mentioned, the like que- the, the name referred to like a lazy woman. But we have like there's also Queen Mab and like Irish legend. Like, oh me, yeah, different Queen Mab or
1: Queen Maeve, or
0: is yep. there any relationship?
1: Nope. Um, a lot of people think that there would be because that in writing the names look similar. Mab in English again. It's it comes from this word um, for sort of a a lazy woman who is not very clean. Excellent word, by the way, that no longer exists in the English language. Um, But Mave in Irish, uh, which I should say, Mab is spelled M-A-B. Mave in Irish is spelled M-E-D-B in the older Irish.
0: Irish is spelled the way it sounds. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's it's got its own rules you yeah. know for pronunciation and it's it's it uses the latin alphabet but it has different sounds for the letters yeah um, the word the name maeve comes from the wor- word in older irish for intoxication like she who intoxicates connected to the word for uh, mead oh okay yeah, yeah. so because all
0: those etymologies are so interesting
1: oh well, you've come to the right person oh, yeah i i can etymology language nerd geek out forever yeah well,
0: yeah but so we kind of went we started with peter pan yeah we, we can talk about peter pan <laughs> that etymology, like Wandered uh, far pan and all that going back to like Mycenaean greece <laughs> um and we so but there's definitely like a through line for those shakespearean mm-hmm. flower fairies to the victorian ideals and then into Peter Pan and then we had like you said the kind of continued but like fairies definitely did sort of expand in the pop culture i think starting like i mentioned Brian Froud Jim Henson Labyrinth in the 80s and then my favorite terrible fairy movie is legend <laughs> it's not terrible I mean, it's I glorious it. <laughs> it's like it's glorious
1: <laughs> legend legend is the the shakespeare equivalent of our generation because yeah. it really makes no sense not if you stop poked. and try to think
0: about it it's like oh shouldn't you like you live in the forest shouldn't you have pants no. Like clearly
1: like, not you're gonna
0: get poked
1: by a thorn or something <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's just all of these cultural and like cosmological references and and random folklore and things that should make no sense like there's unicorns and there's the devil which yeah. and this is a little devil, weird like
0: the devil's son he's darkness, but he's like, he just looks like the devil he's like i just love that the makeup people
1: in that movie are just like no make the horns bigger this, this is what i'm talking about with like the shakespeare of our generation because they were just like you know what we're just gonna do it and we're gonna do it to such an extreme that it actually is ridiculous, but it'll be awesome. Mm-hmm. And well, it was.
0: Yeah, we certainly have, like, little fairies. We have a little fairy, very Tinkerbell-ish fairy there. But, of course, so she can be, like, sexy and, like, try and seduce Tom Cruise, she gets big, which yeah. is something you see kind of more in the, like, 80s and 90s fairy movies. Like, oh, no, they can get big and be sexy fairies. Uh,
1: the funny thing is, oh, it's funny to me anyway, That actually makes more sense with folklore Mm -hmm. than most of the rest of what we see with a lot of modern um, pop culture fairies, because we do have a lot of folklore that says they're shapeshifters, they can change size, um, or at least they can mess with how humans perceive them. So maybe you're seeing it as small, but it's not, or maybe you're seeing it as big and it's not um and fairies and and sexuality are, are oh yeah hugely intertwined <laughs> oh very much
0: so like that's definitely
1: accurate more more accurate
0: I mean like legend's yeah. not inaccurate when it comes to like just the variety of fair folk you yeah. see a it's
1: it's just that they took a whole bunch of them and just threw them in a blender and were like and this is going to be our story and they have makes like, no sense kind of a puck sort of character yeah um,
0: just sort of an asshole <laughs> like he does it. he's like the least useful character in that movie <laughs> um
1: the unicorns um, were spectacular
0: yeah the horns on yeah the be section design was so great on that movie um i do you know I, I definitely believe that there were some of the good folk watching that being made and because like the studio caught on fire. <laughs> like maybe more than once like it was a very troubled production
1: yeah. um
0: but I think that there were definitely like some
1: like, somewhat that, like a- Tom Cruise's
0: first movie
1: it was what no it was it
0: was pretty early in his career but he'd made a few other things and this is supposed to be like a big like showy he could do like a classical drama thing it's like nope <laughs> oh boy
1: no you cannot oh you know. I have I legend labyrinth the last unicorn those those are all like in this range of movies that i just love them they're ridiculous at points sometimes more so than others but that's okay is it, yeah like it's okay
0: these were these movies that were not at all successful when they came out like they were giant bombs and they're sort of one of the reasons that we didn't get many like fantasy movies in the 90s because there was so many attempts made in the 80s that that all failed because some of them were terrible and but then like they were all on cable for most of the 90s and so like you and me grew up watching these, yeah and now we're all making our kids watch them so <laughs> as it so, should be exactly as much, it you know, should be loves labyrinths she's just we we yeah um our full moon ritual is we will go out in the full backyard when there's a full moon and we will play magic dance and <laughs> nice dance around um you know, kind of going through the 90s. Where were fairies, like, then we get to kind of the fantasy renaissance of the 90s, of the, of the 2000s and 90s, where we like, we have good fantasy movies again now. And then we get this whole, like, urban fantasy. Like, when did urban well, fantasy become a thing?
1: Urban fantasy actually started at the same time as the movies that we're talking about. Like in the literary um, version or like? Yeah, in the literary version, in the 1980s and 90s. Is really when urban fantasy became a thing Um, my absolute favorite genre I have no shame at all (laughs) when it comes to urban fantasy Um, because to me urban fantasy is just such a fascinating concept you know previously we have a lot of high fantasy we have this idea of completely separate original worlds that are populated by all these various, you know, fantastical beings. Sometimes from folklore, sometimes not. You know that that goes back quite a ways. Um, even science fiction, you know, goes back quite a ways. And then you start to see this idea coming around in the the eighties and nineties of well, what if, what if we had elves and fairies and you know all of this range of of otherworldly beings, but they were in like New York City. Yeah.
0: How would that work? Definitely gremlins in the subway in New York City. Like there's something, (laughs) there's all sorts of stuff down there.
1: Yeah. Um, And once you start to open up to this idea of like, you know, what are the stories that we could tell if we're looking at it through this lens? You start to see all of these really interesting things coming around. Um, And much like the movies in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the older urban fantasy is really hard to describe with words (laughs) just had to be there it just had to be there and you have to understand it in the context of its time which you know much like Peter Pan (laughs) right Um, because a lot of it was very very innovative when it when it first came out even if we'd look back on it now like 40 years later and be like wow is that silly Or, you know, that's, that's a little ridiculous, but you know, it was people who were really just starting to establish these, the groundwork for what we would have later on. And I think like, you know,
0: out of like the eighties and nineties and like the way fantasy and media like evolved, you see things like the influence of stuff like Dungeons and Dragons and the original, like various versions of Tolkien that had been animated same one of which was by the same studios <laughs> uh, last unicorn and so you don't even see like especially because Lord of the Rings when fantasy kind of finally had its big comeback with Lord of the Rings the, the Peter Jackson movies which is like yeah. a whole series of episodes there yes um, but fairies are still actually not part of that mindset like fairies are girly fairies are kiddie stuff even yes. though you're dealing with races that would be like considered fae or you know, fairy races, yep. actual like fairies, or you don't see them as much as you see, you know, elves or
1: orcs. Which or. is really funny to me because the word fairy is a catch-all term that applies to everything we're talking about. Yeah. But again, because of the Victorians, because the Victorians took fairies and made them into this um, sort of, you know, childlike, s- tiny winged figure pixies Yeah, what we would call sprites right pixies fairies yeah people think of when you think of
0: fairies yeah
1: right um and so now you will run into people who are very adamant that like that is what that is only what a fairy is it is that and it's nothing else and everything else is something different um when actually it's kind of the other way around that you know, fairy has always been this kind of catch-all term that, like, goblins would be a type of fairy, um, elves would be a type of fairy. You know, they all kind of fit under this this wider category. But because it's so ingrained in pop culture, the other way around, that's that's how a lot of people have kind of come to understand it. So, you know, if you look at something like The Lord of the Rings, which has elves, dwarves, goblins, orcs all kinds of stuff yeah. going on. Um, you know, most of those, when, when Tolkien was writing about them, those would have been what he would have understood as fairies. Yeah,
0: exactly. Especially the yes. elves, the, the function the elves, especially in Lord of the Rings, those kind of elves yes. are this higher other race that kind of yeah. exists on its own and couldn't really care less about human beings for a lot of the time.
1: Yeah he he based his elves on a blend of um Celtic language speaking culture and Norse. Yeah. Cultural. They're very
0: much like Aesir Vanir. Like there's even two different yep. types of elves and one of the v- versions of elvish is based on Finnish like Quinny. I
1: think so. And Welsh, Welsh plays into it as well. Yeah. Um, Cuz Tolkien of course was a linguistic genius. Yeah. Um oh Uh, oh, yeah to uh, that
0: to mention some movies like there is a movie about the covington fairy um
1: cottingly fairies
0: yeah it's called like fairies it's just like the name of the movie it's it was from like late 90s early 2000s not a great movie but it's kind of fun because
1: once again the 90s yeah it was
0: like it was really called like fairies like the tagline was fairies are real
1: yeah i know which one you're talking about yeah but there was also yeah.
0: like another book. There's a movie a few years about Tolkien that was really,
1: it was
0: really. It was far too boring for a movie about Tolkien. But yeah.
1: he was can't a really do interesting person.
0: Nerd, terribly exciting.
1: He was a really interesting person. Yeah. Um, when you learn about him, I mean he he was human. He was flawed. He, you know, we could have a whole episode talking about Tolkien and, you know, some of the issues with his work versus the the good things with his work and. You know all of that but he he really was interesting and there's a couple stories that go around about him like you know showing up at parties dressed as like a polar bear or something like that because he just apparently he liked to have some fun
0: yeah He's yeah some, i would have loved to go to a dinner party with
1: Tolkien that'd be, that'd be fun i think it would have been interesting yeah
0: but kind of bring us back to you know urban fantasy didn't really make it onto like movie screens until like lord of the rings made like fantasy a viable yeah again and you see like there's like i mean there are fairies and charms there's fairies and willow which again was late 80s 90s like again not a movie which was great which did terribly at the box office
1: willow i saw willow in the theater too, and it the was the first movie ever excellent seen. movie oh, good for you yeah. that's excellent that is a good first
0: movie to start with it's the first movie i remember seeing in the theater our fairies as we see them now we still got you know tinkerbell is still going strong but now we still have like a lot of urban fantasy sort of we talked about this on our last episode where you have a lot of these up these shows with like dark fey and light fey and mm-hmm. urban fantasy like and we have oh my gosh lost girl which is speaking the thing of lost just Girl's taking technology and the <laughs> of forgiving of a lot of shows like, I watch Supernatural, for heaven's sakes. Like, they're not very good on being loyal to mythology, but, oh, Lost Girl.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if it
0: has been a better show, maybe we would have forgiven it more.
1: I, I definitely would have forgiven it a lot more if it was a better show. And I will preface this by saying that I could not stand Bo. I thought she was the most, like, unlikable, unrelatable main character. Yeah. So I I struggled with that. <laughs> Um, I know a lot of people out there really love Lost Girl. Um, I, I love Kenzie. I love Dyson. Beau was awful. So
0: it was like Lost Girl had so many great ideas, but they just sort of like f- forgot about them after a season. Yeah, which is you know was a problem also with another story, another show from like similar, like the same creators or writers of Lost Girl, which is by Nana Herb. Which also like oh, I think of yeah. my critic hat here, like great premise that it just like ignores after the first or second season like let's go do some other random crap and lost girl does that even worse
1: you know i kind of i kind of wonder sometimes if that's a wider urban fantasy problem yeah because a lot of um books a lot of novel series that are urban fantasy have the exact same issue it's like too many ideas yeah and it's like every new season or every new book is trying to one up the last one. And when you do that with urban fantasy, the problem you quickly run into is you're already starting with a premise that's fantastical. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when you keep trying to make it more and more, it gets to a point where like no one can suspend their disbelief that far. Yeah. You know, like the problem with so many of these
0: shows and movies is like, you start with this premise where like you have this really cool world, but to have an interesting movie or book or show, you have to have conflict. So you have like, okay, you right. have a dark and light side, but the light people will actually be assholes and the dark ones will be sexy and you'll want to like, and. So-
1: I just did an entire academic presentation at a conference about exactly that. Yes. <laughs> okay, no, I-, I agree with yeah. you. <laughs>
0: and so and then like but then like by the end like okay somebody's been defeated but there's a third threat here and so you like in
1: the second you
0: have like okay dark and night must unite to fight purple
1: yeah because the third threat is now way worse than the first that ever was and by like season
0: three or like in lost girl or season four like oh now we actually we've gone the threats have gotten so big we actually have to fight crappy versions of gods
1: yeah,
0: Not that, like, Lost Girl didn't, like, just, you know, really misinterpret certain gods <laughs> in, like, season one.
1: Well, yeah. But on a, on a smaller scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's exactly the problem. You run into this where the big bad, if you will, is at such a high level to begin with. And then that gets defeated. And it's like, well, where do you go from there? Well, now you have to have something even... Bigger. Yeah. So it's like, well, first we have to save the city. And now we've saved the city. Now we have to save the country. Now we save the country. Now we have to save the world. Yeah. You get where, I mean, eventually there's nowhere left to go. Like, yeah. Kind of,
0: like, I mean, like to use my, my beloved supernatural here, it's like, you know, in season nine, like their villain, like they already kind of, you know, God and the, de- like they already fought the devil. Like season nine, their villain is like God's secretary. Like, <laughs> and I'm not even joking, like, that's who the care, I and it's an interesting I character, know. but like, they're like, okay, now we're gonna have God. Guess what? God's got a sister,
1: <laughs> yep,
0: she's mean and a very ill defined character, of course. And finally, the final season, like, okay, well, we'll
1: actually fight God, like, yeah, yeah. gonna kill God. Why not? Yeah, why, why not? not? So, I'll give you two examples, in my opinion, of a show that doesn't do it well, and then a show that I thought did it well. In, in what I would say is a loose urban fantasy context. So Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Mm-hmm. First season, really good, in my opinion. Had some issues, but overall. yeah. Second season, really good. And that's where we start to lose the script. Yeah, it's like, okay,
0: well, we had God and the devil. What do
1: we do now? Right, and we've, you know, we get to this point where we've, we've literally defeated... devil we've defeated satan and we've trapped him Yeah, and season where do we go
0: season or i guess season two seasons were weird
1: yeah yeah um where do we go from here and then to try to continue it on it just got so ridiculous with how far out and i like the show mind you because i have very low standards (laughs) <laughs>
0: like, now, now we're going to go to abominations.
1: Right, right. We'll just, we'll just bring okay. in a little Lovecraft without, you know, we'll file off the serial numbers first because we can't actually call it Lovecraft because that's naughty, but we'll, you know, we'll pretend that's not what it is, but that's what it is. And you know, we had the whole pagan thing, which was very weird. Yeah. But they, but they okay. It's all season and then
0: they became pagan at the end. Like, wait, what?
1: <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you know, don't stare too long into the abyss, or you'll you two will become a monster. To mash up, badly paraphrased quotes here. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so to, in my mind, that's a show that really lost it, and it, it still was worth watching. It was entertaining, but it was so ridiculous by the end. In contrast, take Netflix's show. Well, it wasn't originally Netflix's show, but it is there now. Um, Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Based on the, the Neil Gaiman. Now, to be fair, yeah. it's based on Neil Gaiman. Anything based on that is, is bound to be better. Um, sorry, I'm revealing my, like, Neil Gaiman fangirl oh, yes. side here. This is my favorite devil. Like,
0: yes. Sorry. And
1: that. well, I mean, it's yeah. uh, Tom Ellis. How can yeah, you not? Like, So
0: <laughs> I would like to live deliciously with Tom Ellis. Like, that's that's
1: mixed my- saying. I'm just saying.
0: Yeah, that's a show um, that really started very, very small.
1: Yeah, and it—it it he's a literal devil. He—he <laughs> he is a literal devil, and they—they have conflict every season. They have things that have to be addressed and overcome. But the main premise of the show really isn't fighting against supernatural powers. It's more him struggling with his own yeah. power and who he is and who he wants to be. And you can do that for five or six seasons and keep it interesting without hitting a point where you feel like okay well this is just silly now like what what even is still happening here um
0: yeah and as much as i make fun of supernatural it's i adore supernatural and it's a show that actually was able to do this and i mean it lasted for 327 episodes because it wasn't really about you know these escalating threats which you know they it stop one apocalypse and start another one. Yeah. Um, very Buffy
1: the Vampire Slayer with that.
0: Yeah, very, very like okay. And sometimes, like one or one, se- one or two seasons are like, well, let's not have a giant world ending big bad. Let's just make this about the characters. And this like that season was kind of weird and not satisfying. Yeah. Um, but the reason Supernatural works, the reason Lucifer works, is because of the characters. Because mm-hmm. it's not really about the monsters. It's about the relationships. It's about family. It's about. Yep characters and
1: exactly and it's it just happens to be set in a reality where all of these supernatural magical things are real and possible and happen
0: yeah so to kind of bring us back to fairies i'll like and maybe talking about my one of my favorite like i have about 50 favorite episodes of supernatural but they have only one fairy episode in supernatural that they actually fight can. the fairies fight the fairies and i love the concept of this episode because it's the, the concept is it starts they're investigating ufo abductions and it turns out ufos are just fairies and I, and, I, and this wasn't something that they made up this is like a theory other people
1: yeah have, right it is yeah there's a you've kind of hit upon one of like the the core disagreements between some people in the ufo communities and some people in the like fairy community folklore community is are aliens and ufo sightings modern fairy encounters or our older fairy encounters historic ufo and alien encounters and people will like throw down about this i would
0: like to just be in a bar and like watch like a kind of slightly drunk UFOologist <laughs> and a fairy person have that and just have it out and just <laughs> like
1: um it would be spectacular
0: yeah. yeah and i love that the way that supernatural kind of plays with like the tinkerbell fairies. <laughs> beats the shit out of dean and it's a great scene because yeah. it was just Vince getting whacked with a light bulb on a stick <laughs> and then he puts her in a microwave well you do what you got to do and it's all scarred to like space oddity by david bowie to bring in kind of both <laughs> labyrinth and the fairiness so nice that's a great i act. like that um I like though in that episode it's really fun because they have like a few different kinds of fairies they have red caps It's just a guy in a red cap it's like okay I like you you didn't have to blow the budget on that one right creepy guy in a red hat that's a red yeah. cap and they never even call it a red cap like you just if you know yeah, you just know folklore. floor it's very funny otherwise it's just like okay there's a guy that only Dean can see
1: I actually really admire shows that will do stuff like that and and put things in that if you don't know the context or if you don't get the reference you're not going to get it, but if you do it's awesome.
0: Yeah, there's lots of examples of that in Supernatural that I can't remember right now, yep. but because I'm.
1: That so- was one of the things I liked a lot about Chilling Adventures of Sabrina because I'm a big horror movie fan. Oh yeah,
0: there's so many visual references to horror movies in there. Like, yeah, just because i had josh on here um few episodes, like back in december after the final season dropped and Mm -hmm. every one of that writing staff was a horror fan or they were actual practicing witches like there's so much in um sabrina that's very like if you know you know
1: yep yep but that's fun you know and you you can still watch it if you don't know and enjoy it and it's still a good show but if you do know it's 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 like, where's Waldo? Like, you're watching it, like, oh, I get that. Oh, I get that reference too. Now, like, but it's kind
0: of like a big final question. Do you think there's any like movie or show out there that has really done like a representation of fairies that's close to accurate to the folklore? Or like, but because I mean, you can't, that's hard to say because the folklore is just so. Massive,
1: yeah, so broad. I what mean,
0: the, the most accurate
1: the, the main one because it, what makes this question a little easier is that there's not a ton out there that's really specific to getting into the the fairy folklore. Um, a lot of what we have is going to be more along the like the Disney Fern Gully kind of lines. Um, even Carnival Row, and I know a lot of people love that show too, but the whole human size fairies with wings thing like right there is a little we would have to have a whole we could have a whole episode discussing <laughs> carnival row um so not that one uh but there's a bbc miniseries and it's based on a book it's called jonathan strange and mr norell i love that book and i have not been able to watch
0: that show because I, I i've actually been frightened to watch the show i loved that book so much
1: the show is very good oh good um, Yeah. I mean, mind you, I like I we have established earlier in this episode, I have very low standards. That way I'm very rarely disappointed. But that book is like, what if
0: magic and fairies was real, had always been real? And they used fairies and magic to fight in the Napoleonic Wars. Like great, great stuff right there. And it's this huge book.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that makes the miniseries as good as it is is they they kind of approached it with a spare no expense. Attitude. So the visual effects are wonderful. The actors are wonderful. The, like, there's just the whole thing you really feel, it feels very seamless. um And I thought it stayed very true to the book for what it was. And, you know, the gentleman with the thistledown hair in that is very true to what you'd expect in folklore.
0: Very much.
1: But um, yeah, I've got the book behind me. I remember, like, they describe, like, his.
0: It's either like, his coat or something like the like a coat this color of sadness or something. It's beautiful, like language, like things that shouldn't be colors are colors, which is one of my favorite literary yeah. devices.
1: Yeah, she's a good author. Oh yeah, um yeah, she's Donna Clark. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I'm gonna go watch that now once I'm done.
1: With I highly recommend it. Any other things? Yeah. My my two main recommendations for people who are interested in this subject, fairies and, and folklore and fairies, and urban fantasy, modern fantasy, are Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, which is, I don't know necessarily, I mean, it is urban fantasy, technically, because it takes place in London and it's fairies. It's, it's Victorian. Well, yeah, it's, just 19th it's, century. Regency. Yeah. Re, yeah. 18th century? Napoleonic Wars, whenever yeah. that was. I can't remember right now. Um, bad, bad me. I can't remember. But the other show that I recommend, on a completely different end of the spectrum, is Netflix's The Dragon Prince. Oh, that's an animated,
0: right?
1: It is animated. It's not folklore based, but it's a perfect example of what you can do if you take the the general concept of you know fantastical creatures. It has elves. It has dragons. It has all these sort of um, I guess we'd say like standard D and D. Yeah. kind of things in it but they really just made everything up <laughs> yeah. for themselves you know their elves are very original very unique to them um, they're dragons they're just the way everything is done um, it's so creative and so imaginative and it does it without getting into one of my biggest pet peeves which is taking just enough of the folklore that people can kind of recognize what you're doing but then completely rewriting it so you're, you're kind of changing everything except that like that silhouette yeah um, which causes so many problems to me gives me headaches so um, it's it's great to see a show that made something that was totally original that feels totally original if that makes sense
0: excellent well I'm going to go check out both of those so for people who want to check out you and your work you have you're on twitter at morgan daimler right i am and I am. you have like a thousand books out <laughs> it feels that way what is your latest book because you have like many, many
1: uh the last one that was published is pagan portals lou which is look at the irish god lou so we got this coming up so yeah, I have a book coming out the early next year called Pantheons the Norse, which is like an introduction to um, Norse heathenry, basically. And then I have one towards the middle of next year called Pagan Portal's She, which is specifically about Irish fairy beliefs. That's awesome. So, I'm excited for that
0: one. But the Pagan Portal books, I like this because they're very easy, they're easy reads. Mm-hmm. Like, um, they're not kind of like, they're not dry academic tests. But they're Easy reads in there.
1: Yep. Yep. They're designed to be like good introductory books. So they're fairly short, but they try to give you like all the information you would really need to know to then go forward if you want to learn more. Like, you have a
0: great one on like just Irish mythology. And like, when you're first wading into that, it's just like, who is this? Who is (laughs) there? Oh, they've got four husbands, or like sometimes their wife is this person, and sometimes it's this person
1: yeah
0: and it none varies. of these names are spelled the way you think they should be spelled and yeah. Yep. well, thank you so much for coming to talk Barry. It's been a great discussion.
1: Oh yeah, it was super fun. And if you or anyone else is curious about the paper that I'd referenced, um oh yes, I it's I am on academia.edu under Morgan Daimler shockingly. Um, but it was a, a presentation I gave this past April at the Illmet by Moonlight Gothic Fairies Conference yes. where I was talking about the evolution of the um, Unseelie from um, antagonist to anti-hero so if that's a subject that interests you. Awesome <laughs> yeah well everyone go check that out yeah so thank you so much thank you for having me on it was really fun thank you so much for listening,
0: dear listeners. I do want to apologize for some of the sound quality on this episode. Um, last time Morgan was on, uh, they had some trouble with their audio, and this time I did, so maybe the good folk just like to mess with our audio when we're talking to Morgan so sorry about that we will try to be better next week if you want to support us you can check us out on Patreon uh, search for Real Magic Pod on Patreon you can follow us on Twitter at Real Magic Pod you can follow me on Twitter at Fangirling Jess um, there will be all sorts of stuff coming soon I've finished working on the book I'm working on and so i will be information about that if you want to read about my thoughts on Supernatural please remember to send us a review send us some, some, some friends to listen along, Um, make sure you're subscribed to the feed. If you have any questions or suggestions for movies or guests, you can email us at realmagicpod at gmail.com
1: and until then, remember Fight the fairies! You fight those fairies! (laughs)
0: Goodbye! Goodbye, cruel world!
1: Goodbye to life. Goodbye, my life. Goodbye, 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 my life. Goodbye to all that. Oh,